The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Welcome. I'm John Doe. You don't mind if my aide sits in? We were a little surprised when you agreed to see us, Mr. Doe. Oh? Why is that? Uh, well, there has been a complete media blackout on your campaign. This is actually the first interview you've given, isn't it? Well, I've just been waiting for the right journalists. Someone who wouldn't misquote or misrepresent me. I've read your work. I think we stand for the same things. Yes. Huh. Uh, what is it you do stand for, exactly? Oh, you know, the usual. Uh-huh. Well, maybe you could give us a little more on your background, where you're from. Uh, have you ever held public office before? Because, see, we looked and... Well, we weren't really able to find anything. Well, I've kept a low profile. Well, then you must be equally surprised by your sudden surge in popularity, and given that uh, nobody really knows anything about you. You just tell your readers that when John Doe becomes complete and absolute democratically elected public servant, their lives will vastly improve. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, October 28, 2010. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and today on the show, my goodness, uh, taxes are too high and we're not going to take it anymore. The Ontario municipal election, certainly the main theme of today's show. Near the end of the show, or closing out the show today, we also want to take a look at a very different subject, morality as a branch of science. And Robert's been reading a book, what was it called, Robert? The Moral Landscape. Sam Harris's The Moral Landscape. Uh, and you said there's some very interesting things in there. Yes, indeed. And we also want to talk about voters, voting, candidates, and democracy, and some of the issues that were raised in the recent uh, municipal elections across Ontario just this past Monday. But before we begin that, you know, Robert, you know, occasionally when I come into CHRW studios to do our weekly show, I get this really surrealistic feeling about this whole experience of what we're doing here. I mean, uh, really, you know, you and I, we just walk in, willy-nilly each and every week, uh, just sit down, get to say whatever we want to, get up, leave, come back next week and do it all over again. And uh, boy, do we ever take the infrastructure that we enjoy here at CHRW for granted, eh? We, uh, well, you know, you no, know I, I don't take it for granted. Well, I, I really appreciate you don't take it for what, I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to do that. Well, you know, in a way, I, I didn't mean it that way. It's kind of like the thing that happens when you take the wife for granted, eh? You get in trouble. <laughs> but, uh, no, I, I think it's kind of nice to be able to take it for granted a bit so that, like, for example, you and I can focus more on the content of the show, not on its production, not mm -hmm. on its distribution, or even archiving. My goodness, we get all that work done for us. And, uh, you know, you and I are sitting all by our lonesome in this single studio on the other side of uh, the bulletproof, uh, soundproof windows, both in front and behind us are two other studios, complete with console boards. In one of them, our on-air operator, Kathy, is keeping an eye on the controls. 
Um, surrounding these studios, out in the office and reception area, we see a dedicated full-time staff who keep the whole shebang going. And I know that there's a fourth studio um, somewhere in, I think that's the newsroom, isn't it? The one over in the far side there. And they can also broadcast on air. However, I've never ventured into that room, you know, that room behind this studio here, just uh, the one behind us, because I've looked in a couple of times and saw a lot of fancy electronic equipment and stuff. Um, my feeling is that's where the warp drive is. That's where they keep all the real heavy equipment. <laughs> Mind you, you know, these, these studios here are a lot bigger than some other studios Oh, my I've goodness, been in. i got to tell you, I've been in radio studios around the province where the whole studio is the size of this table of in a front closet. of us. Yes. It's like a closet, some of them. Uh, absolutely. And then again, when we come here on campus, you know, I really want, I've been meaning to say this for, for a long time. I've got to say thanks to Wayne and Larry and often Jim over at the parking lots, uh, you know, whose help uh, with parking on campus makes it possible for us to be here by 11 o'clock some mornings. <laughs> today being one of those days. Oh, eh? convocation today is yes. difficult getting the parking spot. So, uh, you know, that's what keeps us going. We come in here, we do this on our own time, but we're also doing it on somebody else's time, and they can always use your help. So remember, call us, 519 661 13600 and pledge your support to CHRW and if the lines are busy just hit that redial button donations of $20 or more qualify for a tax receipt and uh, you know that's what keeps us on the air for the whole year Robert what do you think about this election did the voters speak out or did something else happen oh a number of observations Bob mm-hmm. um, I was uh, pleasantly surprised I guess you could say to see Joe Fontana get in however uh, I don't necessarily agree agree with his uh, political philosophy, judging from his past Well, does behavior. he have one? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's a liberal, so I guess not. Yeah, so. Okay. And um, though I and I agree with some of the comments I've heard on the other radio stations this morning about uh, uh, the outgoing mayor, uh, Amory DeSico, best, and um, disappointed in my own particular riding to see uh, Bill Armstrong get in over Steve Polehill. I was really hoping that uh, Mr. Polehill would... Uh, get in, but uh, he just squeaked out of it. Other than that, uh, some faces I'm glad to see have gone. Some faces um, I'm waiting to see how they're going to be acting uh, under a mayor who uh, promises four years of 0% tax increase, and I think the City of London should hold his feet to the fire on that, and especially any councillors who do not um, particularly agree with that sentiment, that we are taxed way too much in this city. That's that's an issue of itself, that whole tax increase issue, which I want to deal with in a sec. But, you know, if you look at Ottawa, there's a new mayor. There's 10 new councillors, I understand. In Toronto, Rob Ford is the mayor. In London, Joe Fontaine is the mayor. Um, it was a wipeout across the province with, with fewer exceptions, it almost seemed, didn't it? Yes. And, yeah. and Hopefully it'll translate into a provincial election a year from, year from now. Well, that's another, another debate. But it seemed to be a voter's election. Um, you know, last week I predicted it would be pretty much the status quo with a few surprises. Well, we got a few more surprises than even I expected. I thought maybe one or two or three, but not dozens. Yeah. And so certainly it was a voters' election, low turnout or not. And the voters who came out didn't chicken out in terms of who they wanted to vote for. Actually, I don't, I don't consider it a low turnout. I think it was 40%, wasn't it? 30, 39%. Yeah. 39%. That's not a low turnout. I've seen lower. Yes, but it was ex- low. They call that a low turnout. That's, you can't that's expect not, much higher than that. I, I agree, you know. Um, but looking over our local 
campaigns here in London. I remember, I recall Nordex uh, pollster Kim Ainsley referred to Anne-Marie de Seco Best's campaign as a, as a, quote, Seinfeld campaign, <laughs> meaning pretty well that, you know, she really didn't have anything to offer. And, and, and of course, after losing by a real scant 2,498 votes, that's not a big difference, okay, when you consider the total number of votes cast and the total number that could have been cast that weren't. That's a very slim margin. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of contributing factors. I think one of them, strangely enough, was something I call the kiss of death, when the mayor received the kiss of death endorsements of union groups and various labor leaders who were basically, interestingly enough, also nowhere to be found for public comment on the day following the election. <laughs> labor was actually silent for a few blinks there. I couldn't believe it. Wow, silence from labor. Uh, of course, the mayor received no endorsement from the London Free Press, you know, another Joe Rossetti editorial milestone. <laughs> and, uh, you know, local observers, I think, were all claiming that Joe Fontana's victory was a phenomenon of the last couple of weeks, that the momentum got up. And I found it very interesting that Kim Ainsley made it quite explicit in an interview I heard with him that this belief is totally myth. But it sure didn't stop Fontana himself from believing it. You know, he was right on there, right after Kim says that. And he gets, oh, yeah, the, it, it was really getting going the last two weeks, you know. Yeah. But it, um, which brings us back to the issue, because that was really, I think, what, what fueled the whole thing. Uh, taxes. Voters have had enough. Um, they wanted, quote, change. Oh, boy. Remember the Obama election? Uh, change, 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 change. And Americans got change. And now they're running around, at, you know, talking, hey, buddy, got any change? <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what happened, right? So no tax hikes for four years, you know. You, you, you were talking about everybody holding Joe's feet to the fire on this one. And you, you heard this through the whole campaign. Well, he's only got one vote on council, you know. Well, so did the other mayor, the previous mayor. Everyone has one vote on council. But the way I look at it, that's one more vote for a 0% tax increase than we had before. Yes. Right? End of story. Whether the others vote or not is not directly Joe's responsibility, although he can certainly have, a, have an influence on that. But I think every council in the province has an extraordinarily strong zero tax hike mandate right now based on the message delivered to municipal councils right across the province by voters themselves. Um, you know, after what they've just witnessed, I would think there'd be a few elected councillors who would want to be identified with tax increases right now, uh, no matter what their philosophy. And uh, I think that's the only really good point that might be a break on government spending at all levels. But, you know, what about that philosophy? Um, did they move to the right? Do you think there was a move to the right? I keep people saying, well, everybody's reacting to the unjust tax burden. Was, was it a move to the right? Why do, they, why do they consider to be fiscally responsible a move to the right as if it's something bad? Because the right wing, That's has, an interesting al the right wing has always been labeled as a bad thing uh, to be right wing versus, say, left wing. Uh, left wing being supposedly compassionate, right wing mm -hmm. supposedly being fiscally cruel, you know. Um, no, voters out there and taxpayers out there and homeowners just simply want the city to run efficiently with the least amount of dollars out of their pocket as possible. And I can give them one good um, a piece of advice to let them do that. Start thinking about what the role of a municipal government is. Now, today on uh, another radio show, I heard... Uh, the announcers say that Anne-Marie DeSico, the outgoing mayor, left the city in a better 
shape than it has been when she became mayor. And the reasons he gave were the John Labatt Center, the museum, and other mega projects like that. And I'm thinking that that is the exact reason why she was not leaving the city in a better shape than was, because she um, championed projects that were not part of a municipal mandate. It's interesting. What a, what a term, leaving the city in, in a better shape. Well, maybe that may be true, but guess who's in worse shape? The taxpayers in the city. The corporation for the City of London may be in a better shape, but yeah, yeah you're right. The taxpayers and the that, individuals to me, out there is are the, not. is the measurement of whether a municipal council is successful or not. And I think there is a glaring black hole in city council in terms of who, who they are and who they're supposed to represent. I've, I've seen this over and over and over again, that they seem to forget they're representing the taxpayer. In fact, you know, if I wanted to be a purist on this, I'd say that even though I voted this election first time in a municipal election for many years for me, and it's an issue I want to talk about, you know, people say, you know, if you don't vote, you're, you shouldn't have a right to complain. Well, I think it's the reverse it's almost. exact reverse, well, actually, yes. Well, not quite, but uh, still, you know, the whole issue of, of just the whole change of... Um, I, I was happy to vote for somebody that just said, zero percent tax increase because then at least i could say i've got something to hold that one person accountable not the whole city hall right and um so i think that i think the pressure is on now um you know when when they ask is it a move to the right i don't think there's a right to move to i mean even zero tax increase mayor joe fontana comes from our tax and spend liberal party of canada is he the right now? For heaven's sake. You, you know what I mean? <laughs> if he's the right, we're in really bad shape. Th th that's what I mean. And so I think in terms of political direction, what we got was, just as we heard in the opening clip, just the usual. You know, already Joe Fontana is busily organizing, quote, leaders in industry, government, business, and a whole plethora of partners. Okay, sound familiar? Who together with municipal government will busy themselves with planning our future prosperity. And and I can hear the same pattern of government continuing. I don't know that um, there are many councillors who really know what it would take to reduce taxes effectively in a way that would mean something to taxpayers. I don't think a tax freeze is even the answer. I think a freeze is where you start and you work towards lowering taxes in the future and lowering government spending. Good heavens, I take enough of just as a percentage of a person's income. I, I think we've passed the, the no return point, let alone a, a reasonable point. Holy cow. And then you hear them talking about, uh, you know, we've got this 50-50 this split almost in the city with respect to the votes. And, um, oh, no, we've got to have harmony and unity now to resist the polarization that resulted from the vote split, you know. And I'm thinking, well, how's a 90-10 split any less polarized than a 50-50 split, right? <laughs> the 90-10 is just as polarized from each other. So, uh, you know, what scares me a bit is we might be seeing both left and right quote, quote, end quote, uh, cooperate, you know, and when they do that, they make deals, right? You rub my back, I'll rub your back. And they're rubbing their backs with our taxpayer dollars, and that's usually how it ends up working. So that's the big test. We have to keep our eyes open. And, you know, they can just do all of this and just say, oh, oh, yeah, what was that 0% tax increase thing again? Oh, we didn't say anything about not increasing the debt, did we, or the deficit, did we? You know, because you can keep your promise not to raise taxes by doing a lot of horrible other things to That's people, true. too. Yeah. 
and without cutting, quote, essential services, which no one has even defined yet. My goodness. Remember Proposition 13 in California? That's Many right. Many years ago, people wanted a 0% tax increase. What did the councillors do? Mm-hmm. They got rid of the most essential services they could just to teach the taxpayers a lesson. That's right. Don't you tell us not to have zero to have 0%. And the irony is that our taxes have been going up, and essential services, nevertheless, have been drastically cut despite the tax increase. Yes. So, so don't threaten me with a cut in services <laughs> because of a tax decrease. You've already been cutting my services. That's coming regardless. So let's take a quick break now. What we're about to hear is a little uh, recap of what happened this past Monday night. Um, global news, we're going to hear a little bit from the, uh, the Toronto victory and from A-Channel, a little bit about the local victory here in London. On the other side of the bumper, uh, talk a little bit about getting voters out to vote and... Um, the suggestion that we should be able to vote online and make it very much easier to vote in terms of getting people out, although I don't think that's going to necessarily change the outcome of the election, but we'll see. Take a break now, and we'll be back right after this. You are Leslie Roberts and Ann Ruskowski. Oh, it's not over. Hold on. It's only 26%. Well, we only have 300,000 more to go. That's tight. That's tight. Well, there you saw the few minutes of anticipation before the results and suddenly realization that 10 months of hard campaigning had paid off in a big way and you saw the Rob Ford household erupted in cheers. They voted tonight overwhelmingly. They want change and they want respect for their money. Tonight's victory belongs to each and every one of you in this great city. This victory is a clear call from the taxpayers, enough is enough, and I want respect. Nick Paparella joins us now from Fontana headquarters. Nick? Well, Dan, when you showed those numbers, just like all night long, this place has been erupting, Dan. And, uh, now, Robin, hey, when you were working the phones uh, during the campaign, uh, what were you hearing? What were people saying? What did they want? Everybody was saying, we're tired of being taxed to death. We need a change. We need to bring London into the new series it belongs. The only way to get there is with Joe Fontana. Here in London, is it fair to say that Fontana is in the position that he is, perhaps in many of the same reasons why Rob Ford, Rob Ford rather, is in the position that he is, and that he had an energized base mm -hmm. and people who were willing to go and actually cast a ballot? Some, somewhat, but I think it was the issue and it's the financial taxes, the, uh, the amount of money that uh, the public feels that they're paying at all levels of government. rolled in tonight. Londoners watched screens, large and small, and as our Lynn Bullock reports, there was a new way of watching the election and the tight races within it. They're watching the results roll in. The TV is on, but many eyes are on much tinier screens. And they're embracing technology, um, i.e. they're using the mobile apps or, or uh, mobile devices to get the latest results. Imagine it's voting day in Ontario. Some of us are enjoying time with our children. Some of us are cooking. Some of us find it difficult to get around. And some of us are stuck at the office, working late, and the polls are closing. I'm Paul McKeever. Isn't it time we were able to vote with one of these? A freedom government 
will make it happen. Voting with security, privacy, and convenience. Another forward-looking idea from Freedom Party. And it wasn't just Freedom Party's idea. I heard and uh, actually supported Cal Johnson of A-Channel suggestion that some form of online voting could be adopted as a means of getting out the vote. And, uh, you know, aside from security and privacy considerations, it's, it's a convenience. There's no question. Oh, I agree. There's no real privacy considerations if you consider that most people now do their banking online. How more private, you know, it's, it's, it's not very that. secure. I think the current voting system is very insecure for so many reasons. You know, we're, we're involved in politics, of course, directly. Um, you know, here in London, with a voter turnout of just under 40%, it still took them till 3 a.m. to tabulate all the results, right? And apparently, city clerk Kathy Saunders apologized for the system being so slow. New I f- equipment, I f- too. Yeah, and I found those big, those big voting card, card yeah. things. They were ridiculous. Uh, you could do this with a much smaller system or even, as suggested, just do it on your handheld phone because the security is there now. I objected but, to actually having to hand my ballot to a person to put in the box. And you know what? I could see the names of all the other people on the list, and there's no way that the person grabbing my vote thing couldn't see who I voted for. It was so, you, could, you could see it bleed through from the yes. other end, even though it was covered with that thing. Then they try to slide it through, and you're telling me you can't see it between the opening of the box? and the. It was just silly. But I heard a very disturbing open line caller on another radio station this week who reported that he had voted four times in the municipal yes. election as a test. You heard that call, Somebody too. Somebody who identified you? himself as Scott. Yes, and I, I believe believed him. I believed what he said. He, did, he said he didn't vote for anybody, quote, important <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> high up. But he was trying to make a point. And, of course, uh, someone pointed out later that what he did was quite illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, he said at one of the polling booths, he could read the four names under his own on the register. I guess that was one of the legitimate spots. And he was aware that each of them had either passed away or moved away, like years ago, decades ago. And same thing happened to me, Robert. When I went to voters list in my ward, I just pulled out my driver's license, and that's what I voted on because they still had someone registered at my address that wasn't there for almost 15 years. You know, that just it's just strange. And all it took for me to vote was my driver's license. You know, we're on the honor system, as they say, with regard to voting. But we have laws that make voting legally, you know, an offense if you do it more than once. Now, I don't know, Robert. I think we'd be fools to believe that voter fraud and campaign fraud does not occur. I've heard nightmare stories over the years. Unfortunately, it's not something that you can take to the media as such. You know, it's not uh, documented. It's always anecdotal. I can say from personal experience that the vulnerability of our electoral system is well known to the folks at Elections Ontario. And for the record, Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever, who we heard in that ad, um, who regularly attends their political advisory committee meetings, along with representatives from other registered parties, he's been a key proponent to cleaning up the voters list, and he's one of the reasons that we have to even show our driver's license now, which we didn't have to do even a while ago. I used to attend those meetings as well. Yes. And it was amazing the resistance that we would get in terms of uh, trying to clean up the whole voting system. But that aside, the the technicality of it, there was uh, a suggestion, Robert. Now, okay, I voted this time. I had finally found I had an option that I thought I could vote for. Um, But there's a suggestion that the people who didn't vote don't have a right to complain and that they're not participating in the election, et cetera, et cetera. Do you buy into that? Nope, not at all. I think that if you do not um, find anything or anything redeemable about the people that you put your uh, um, your, your mark against, uh, 
then that's that's quite all right. The only alternative would be for to run yourself, which I find myself doing in five five elections. I had I had to run myself to find somebody that I would want to vote for. Now, that's <laughs> but ex- no, you can't ask everybody to do that. No, exa- exactly. And what's very funny is, um, you know, getting out the vote is still seen as some solution to our dissatisfaction with governments. That's not going to change it. If you've only got two choices, you've only got two choices. The real secret to exciting elections and increasing voter turnout, I think, is, is by getting out the candidates, That's as you right. say. And elections are you know, effectively over, if you will, uh, when nominations close. At that point, and not a moment before, your voting options are sealed up until that point. Your choices have been determined, as we might be saying in our final segment of today's <laughs> show. And... You know, it's uh, voters who live in a riding where it's just Tweedledum and Tweedledee are most likely to say, well, it doesn't make any difference anyway if I vote. And they're probably right. You know, give them the benefit of the doubt. Don't call them dumb and say, well, you should go out and vote. Why would I go out and vote for somebody who's working against my own interests? The way I look at it is the person who didn't vote and we get a, a crappy government has every right to say that you voted? Well, then you're responsible for this crappy government. I have a right to complain. Mm-hmm. For the people against the people who've actually voted, you know, if, if um, it's really funny, if one candidate beats the other, say with a sixty-forty split, the likelihood is close to a hundred percent that the same result would occur with a hundred percent voter sample or a twenty percent voter sample. In fact, around the province now, we got a perfect test tube case. You had some municipalities where the voting total, vote, voter turnout rather, was higher than normal, others lower, and yet we saw the same pattern of voting everywhere. It was basically the same thing. So clearly, you know, polling firms, that's how they work. They they sample a very small percentage of people relative to the whole voter base and uh, generally are not too far off the mark despite a few notable exceptions or what they call invalid junk polls. Yet, uh, you know, the people who don't choose to vote or who choose not to vote, maybe that's what they're doing. Who exercise their right by staying home are being told, and I heard this all day long on Monday, I wanted to throw a brick at the radios that I was listening <laughs> to, oh, you should, be, you should hold your head in shame if you don't vote today. And then out come all the guilt-inducing arguments. Some of them, I just wanted to shake my head. Our soldiers died for our freedoms. Did you know that, Robert? So therefore, we must vote out of duty or be forced to vote no matter what. I actually heard people suggest things like that. One radio commentator suggested if you didn't vote three times in a row, you should have the right to vote taken away from you. Well, well there you go. Thank you very much. So then you don't have a right to vote. You know, like, so yeah. if I disagreed with my options three times in a row, I'm, I'm out of the system. The whole point about a right is that it cannot be taken away from you. Yes. And, and you know, they always say, um, you know, give me one reason not to vote. Everybody says, one reason not to vote. My goodness, I could think of dozens, dozens, dozens. And, uh, you know, disagreeing with all of the above is the best reason not to vote. Being totally ignorant of who's who and what's what in a political debate is another good reason not to vote. Wanting to overthrow the government by violence might be another reason <laughs> not to vote. We wouldn't want you out there. And, uh, you know, should... People should be forced to vote. Why, why don't we force candidates to run? I want some results. Darn it. Between the two options, wouldn't that be the more effective at ins, you know, instituting any kind of change? Better choices would, would, would bring about a better mm-hmm. voter turnout. You know, in former uh, Soviet Union, they had a, a forced vote. Everyone got to vote for the one party in power. 
And often there were several candidates to vote for. You could pick you know, one of five or six candidates, all for the Communist Party. That sounds familiar. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> people do not seem to see that that's, it's exactly the same. It doesn't matter if the party names are all different. As long as they're all practicing the same philosophy, then you're getting the same thing no matter what you're voting for. Um, you know, to call that democracy, I think, is a bit of an insult uh, to the con- you know, of, the, of that concept to the Western mind. And yet this is exactly what every person who argues about the quantity of voting and voters is, you know, the key to better governance somehow is actually doing. And, you know, of course, there's the if you don't vote, you don't have a right to complain argument. Um, I think it's backwards and inside out. Whether you vote or not, you always have a right to complain. But the legitimate complaint franchise, I think, weighs most heavily on the non-voter side of the equation. Uh, It was, after all, let's face it, the voting of the past that got us into the high taxes and out-of-control spending problems we have today. So to suggest that the people who did not support irresponsible government with their votes should now not have the right to complain is akin to blaming the victim, is it not? Yeah. That's how I look at it. In fact, the people who gave up, uh, not their right, but their credibility and legitimate authority to complain are those who voted for the crappy politicians we've had in the past. You know, has no one ever thought this through before? I, it, to me, the logic seems self-evident, and yet it comes out every election like a, like a rote, like somebody, like a prayer, you know, no, no thought given to it. And, but of course, there's also the voter who voted in good faith for a candidate based on a clear and measurable promise or on a commitment, and then finds himself betrayed by that same candidate and, you know, after he becomes an elected representative. And he's got a good, he's got a right to complain. Certainly. So it's, um, you know, remember that old saying, fool me once, uh, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Or in other words, don't believe in any promise you hear just because you need to hear it. You know, that's, that's the issue. But, uh, oh, we're coming to the bottom of the hour already. Can you imagine that, Robert? Just before we get there, Bob, there's Mm -hmm. a couple of points I wanted to make about, uh, actually it goes to what you were talking about, the Internet. Because I didn't watch any broadcast television or or cable TV to uh, look at the results. I relied on the Internet. And I regret my choice because I went to the London Free Press site to see the results, and all I could get was their Twitter feed. No matter which button I clicked on, I click on the the results. Live results was the button tab. Oh dear! And up comes their Twitter feed. I click on their Twitter feed tab, and up comes their Twitter feed. And then <laughs> I go back to the live results, and there's the live results. So it's almost like magic that you click on the same button, and some different things come up on London Free Press site. I go to the uh, city's election department site. No re- no results to be found. I don't know where they hid them, but uh, they certainly weren't uh, readily available. I go to cbc.ca to check on the Toronto results. cbc.ca sites would not update. They all showed zeros throughout uh, between 8 and 9 o'clock when I I tuned in. So as far as at least relying on these sources on the Internet for accurate results, I mean, forget it. Well, I'm sure that it's possible to do. They just didn't get it right that particular night. All three of them didn't get it right. You know, um, you know, sometimes simply voting is often a way of escaping one's democratic responsibility, which is to ensure that you really know what your choices are be- before you throw your, wi- your vote away for, you know, the usual, 
You know, that's what you always get. And anyone listening to this show right now must know that this is not the usual when it comes to your radio options on the dial. Remember, this is uh, CHRW's Fund Drive 2010. Donations to CHRW over $20 qualify for a tax receipt. Call us at 519-661-3600. Pledge your support, and if the lines are busy, call again. Give you an example of some of the things that we've been able to do on the show over the past several years. Uh, on this side of the break, we're going to hear the voices of another sampling of past guests who have appeared live with us here on Just Right. And in order of appearance, uh, Toronto Sun columnist Salim Mansour, publisher Ezra Levant, lawyer Karen Selleck, raw milk crusader Michael Schmidt. On the other side of the break, you'll be hearing the voices of the Forest City's David Aldred, Andrew Lawton, who's, by the way, whose Strictly Right group is now sponsoring the Mark Stein appearance in London this coming Monday. And uh, Nordex pollster Kim Ainsley, and last but not least, CHRW's Alex Dorowski and Michael Brown from a broadcast almost exactly a year ago. Who would have figured? Here they are. We'll be back after this. It's the thing that a number of writers have written about, um, including uh, French writers um, uh, about how democracies are themselves vulnerable to being penetrated and undermined from inside. The very strength of democracies are its openness, it's, and particularly democracies, which is also rule of laws, which is our democracy, Canadian democracy, British democracy, etc. Um, its strength is its openness, its inclusiveness, the rule of law, and then those strengths can be turned around. The very fact that it's open, the very fact that it's a rule of law, the very fact that it's transparent, those can be used as a weapon to challenge the existing system and, and, and put the existing system under trial, which is what is happening with what, what uh, Ezra Levant has been writing about mm-hmm. in the book. The we'll shape. certainly be talking about that in uh, detail a little later uh, on. Precisely. But I did try very hard to make this go away without a fight in that first five-page letter that I sent to them, but they wouldn't, because, frankly, they need work. I mean, human rights commissions are in trouble in Canada because we get along so well here, and that's why 15 people were put on my case for almost three years. I was a make-work project. I was a one-man stimulus program for bureaucrats and lawyers, and I told them, don't fight with me. Don't fight with me. Go away. They wouldn't, so I fought with them, and I won, and I'm going to keep fighting, actually, even though I'm free now myself because I think we ought to shut these commissions down, and I'm sort of on a roll now. I'm not going to stop. I, I, I offered them a ceasefire three years ago. They said no. Well, it can take sometimes only one person to make a huge difference. And in the, in the case of Sunday shopping, I mean, Paul Magder was extremely persistent. He just continued to open his store in violation of the law um, over and over again, despite you know being charged many times and having contempt of court findings made against him. Um, but in the end, he prevailed. That is, in the end, um, the legislature finally said, you know, it really is ridiculous. People really do want stores to be open on Sunday, and they changed the law. And I see Michael Schmidt as doing the same thing for raw milk. That is, in the face of criminal charges or quasi-criminal charges, regulatory charges, he is persisting um, with his campaign to have raw milk legalized and be able to sell to, to consumers. And, um, you know, he's challenging the law. And I think that eventually he will prevail. It's, 
it has, has already been a long battle for him, and it may be many more years before he does prevail. But I think eventually um, we'll look back on this era as like, holy smokes, do you remember when the law said that you couldn't buy raw milk, you couldn't buy milk directly from a farmer? Um, and we'll say, that was really nutty. It's a good thing we're past that now. Well, it is, I was, I, I mean, I had this battle in 1994, and the methods they used at that time were, indicated that if they come back again, they will, they, they come with heavier guns. So basically what I did is I, over the last 12 years, and that's pretty remarkable, I mean, not to pat on my shoulder, but what we did is we always had video cameras ready, loaded, uh, and battery charged, and it took them 12 years or 11 and a half years uh, to come back, and this time in full force. But luckily, we basically uh, videotaped the entire, you know, bizarre raid on a, on a, just on a, I would say, rather small dairy farm. To the question of, of how to convince good candidates to run, well, I don't think that's necessarily as hard uh, a problem as how to get them elected and how to get people, <laughs> how, to, yes. how to make voters less apathetic. Uh, in the last civic election, actually, there was quite a number of good candidates running. Uh, they don't do ter terribly well. Uh, they need probably uh, some, uh, some support behind them. Um, to get their message across, but there's more to it than that. I think the big battle really is to get people to actually vote. Uh, I mean, the, the voting rate in municipal elections is very, very low, and the reason for that is basically that people, even if they think there's a good candidate, really don't think anything is going to change. generally always been said in Canada that uh, the higher the voting rate, the better the, the candidates on the right do. And a lot of the reasons for that is that the people on the right have become so disenfranchised by city council and they're like, oh, well, nothing's going to change anyways. And that's a, a mentality that, uh, that we've all seen at, at every level of government at some point in our lives. But uh, I think if we do connect with people and say, well, we are a, another option for you, we are the going going to be the, the change on city council and we being anyone who decides to run so I, I think based on that if we can get more people to vote uh, who haven't normally had faith that their vote even counts that's how these candidates can win the dirty little secret in Ontario is that we are committed to 50% nuclear and whether you like that or not uh, that's in the works the Liberal government supports it um, and, uh, the um, Deputy Premier Smith Smitherman is pushing uh, wind power of course and that's just a big big loser for Ontario uh, with the, the greatest possible uh, respect to uh, folks on the other side uh, not standing by the way the health issues on, on, uh, on wind um, and in the end they're going to 
to have to uh, rely because they're, they've got this no coal policy, that is the elimination of coal plants, they're going to have to rely on uh, a reinvigoration and, and some brand new uh, gas fire plants. And in fact, they've got uh, one up and running in uh, the north end of uh, uh, York region and another one slated for Nanticoke um, down near uh, Lake Erie. So, uh, you know, so much for carbon reductions. Uh, some of our electronica DJs, you know, they have their whole entire setup, like Final Scratch or whatever, which is used through the computer. Um, they set up their own laptop, but then they use the two turntables and have special records. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly how it works with the special records. Well, they're encoded digitally. So so what happens is uh, these... I, I fully don't get it either, but mm -hmm. it's it's uh, a little bit of voodoo for me. Uh, the guy <laughs> actually does the show before my show on Fridays, uh, sets up this thing where he's got his laptop, and he plays these digitally encoded records, which talk to the music that he has stored on his computer as as mp3s and he can do all the stuff that he would do with records um because he's got these digital digital uh turntable things going on on the on the actual it's it's very strange he's got the actual turntable so the sort of the the analog ones with digital records on them which is then wired into his laptop and he can manipulate all the songs that he's got on his laptop like he was playing actual records so maybe, maybe during this fundraising week we can actually ask for money to buy some old equipment <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, imagine. Uh, yeah. Regarding that, though, don't forget to call in with your donations at 519-661-3600 or online at chrwradio.com through PayPal. Mm-hmm. And welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, the only station in London that supports almost every style of music imaginable and plays the music that local artists create. Electronic, folk, rock, world, beat music that you might not even think is music. Spoken word, like this show right here, just right. Music beats, metal, blues, and country can all be found on CHRW shows, and because our charts get exported around the world, we're helping promote local artists wherever music is played on the radio or the Internet. Donations over $20 qualify for a tax credit. And don't you know that we all need a tax credit? Call me at 519-661-3600. Pledge your support to CHRW. And if the lines are busy, please call again. And the last half hour of the show, we're going to be dealing a little differently, uh, different subjects. Um, any more comments on the uh, election, Bob, before we get into something uh, else? Nothing broadly that we haven't really covered already, except that I think that, you know, if, I, I've still got this sheet in front of me with all the candidates' pitches for our votes, okay, like out of um, the uh, Londoner and other recaps where you read what the candidates say. And, you know, you know I have to say it that most of them, are not giving us information that voters need, wouldn't you say? Yes, I would say that. Uh, uh, what I would like very out of a nice candidate that you is support, their philosophy. Yeah, <laughs> it's very nice that you supported such and such a charity and that, you, you know, telling us you work for a charity or the government is not to me a big plus for a candidate. I want to know what the policy is going to be. What kind of policy are you going to get? And as you go through them, you can see that that's exactly why I even went out and voted. I just have to say, I, I, I ran into a candidate in one of these roundups that yep. was in my ward, and, and that person ha said the magic words, 0% tax increase, and so there I was. Gives up for the first time in many years. There's a concrete policy that you yes. can um, hold them accountable for. Mm -hmm. And that, that's, uh, that's a good reason to vote. So this... Um Last half hour, we're going to talk about uh, a book that What's I picked up. What's left of it, anyway. Yeah. It was left of it. <laughs> we're going to talk about uh, Sam Harris's new book, The Moral Landscape, or subtitled How Science Can Determine 
Human Values. And that's only one of a number of books that have been released recently that are very fascinating. Another one is... Well, this, a, this almost sounds like the theme that you had to touch upon when you talked about Stephen Hawking's book last week as well. Yeah, well, His I guess... dismissal of philosophy right off the bat, yeah, right? I'm sort of attracted to those books yeah. for some odd reason. I don't know, but... Which, I, by the way, thank you for lending me that book. I'm going to be saying a lot more about that book. Man, oh man, I got... Oh, there's a lot to say about I can about bitch about things, yeah. that one for Indeed. half an hour. Another one is uh, being reprinted um, in, in, in an abbreviated form in the uh, National Post. Uh, Tarek Fattah's uh, The Jew is Not mm-hmm. My Enemy. Another, what seems to be a great book, with, filled with facts and information. And uh, I have to pick that one up as well. Maybe uh, perhaps even do a review of that at a future future date. I found it interesting in today's National Post. They actually have a picture of Muhammad there. I thought that was uh, Interesting. verboten. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But um, before we begin, shall we be hear about uh, Lewis Black discovering the end of the universe? I'm always ready to listen to Lewis Black. He's always fun. Hey, let's take this break. When we come back, we'll hear about this end of the universe. In my travels, I made an extraordinary discovery. You know, from the beginning of time, man has looked at the heavens and truly believes that the universe ends out in space. Well, that's not true. I've seen the end of the universe. And it happens to be in the United States. And oddly enough, it's in Houston, Texas. (laughs) I know, I was shocked too. Imagine my surprise when I left the comedy club one day and walked to the end of the block and there on one corner was a Starbucks and across the street from that Starbucks in the exact same building as that Starbucks there was a Starbucks (laughs) I looked back and forth thinking the sun was playing tricks with my eyes but there was a Starbucks across from a Starbucks and that my friends is the end of the universe. (laughs) People say, how do you know? And I say, go there between those two Starbucks, look at your watch. Time stands still. (laughs) And if you look this way and look at only the one Starbucks, immediately you think, when I turn around, there can't possibly be a Starbucks behind me. (laughs) Nobody could be that stupid. And if there was a just and loving God, he wouldn't allow this kind of thing to happen. (laughs) So you turn slowly, thinking you'll see a Denny's or a Gap, or a mobile station. (laughs) And there's a Starbucks! (laughs) People have asked, are there too many Starbucks? Now we know. You know, there's two Tim Hortons there at the corner of uh, Highbury and Hamilton Road. (laughs) And you know, when I turn around, I see myself in the mirror. When I turn around here, I see another Robert in front of me. (laughs) Bizarre. Time standing still. But it's not. It's moving along. That's uh, yes. And moving along. Sam Harris is an author I've read and enjoyed before with his uh, End of Faith and Letters to a Christian Nation, both great books, highly recommended. 
Um, we also share a common interest in neurophysiology, neuroscience, uh, which I studied. Mm-hmm. So in his latest book, The Moral Landscape, subtitled How Science Can Determine Human Values, caught my attention. I picked it up two days ago. Haven't quite finished it yet, so understand that... Um, How's it end? <laughs> the butler did it. Um, but I've read enough at least to give a preliminary review, sure. Bob, and if I find that my review is in error after finishing the book, I'll come back on this show and correct any mistakes I made. That doesn't diminish the fact that this still is a fascinating read. He, uh, Just to give a, a highlight of the book, he identifies something which I'm glad that somebody out there has, and that he's saying that there is an objective morality. And um, But his contention is that it can be determined scientifically as opposed to being determined by religious edict. So my first impression came from the subtitle, How Science Can Determine Human Values. I really wondered what he was getting at. Uh, values are determined by individuals using reason, a cognitive process, not necessarily a scientific one. Science is the collection of data through observation and experimentation and the formulation and testing of hypotheses. Reason is the formulation of conclusions, judgments, or inferences from facts or premises. So isn't he trying to explain that in a scientific way, the process of reason then? That's what I'm trying to... not where he went? I'm trying to understand it. It, it, Ironically, he's actually uh, co-founder and chairman of of a, uh, a group called Project Reason. But he doesn't necessarily talk about that in his book. He always talks about science. And he's actually talking about doing MRIs and CAT scans of your brain and determining whether or not something is fulfilling based on these scientific facts or not. So I don't know what he's just trying to get at here. These are two different processes. Reason can rely on science to a degree by establishing facts and premises, but science, I think, stops there. Values are that which an individual acts to gain or, or keep. So when determining values, one has to ask the question, valuable to whom and for what? It presupposes a choice and free will. Ro- what role could science possibly play in determining a person's individual values other than in the grossest sense of, say, for example, living is better than dying. Well, you see that in medicine all the time. You shouldn't smoke. It's a moral decision. Yeah, but... Not a medical one, right? But there are uh, people out there who have welcomed death rather than live. Mm-hmm. And that I would consider ne- not necessarily immoral. Well, there are people who have smoked who haven't died from it. That's true. <laughs> right. Harris' book is an attempt to dismiss uh, Stephen Jay Gould's notion of separate magisteria. Now, that's basically the notion that science, on the one hand, and religion, on the other, are not at war because they deal with two different things, science with reality and religion with meaning. Uh, He posits the following. This is Harris. Quote, Questions about values, about meaning, morality, and life's larger purpose are really questions about the well-being or of conscious creatures. Values, therefore, translate into facts that can be scientifically understood regarding positive and negative social emotions, retributive impulses, the effect of specific laws and social institutions on human relationships, the neurophysiology of happiness and suffering, etc. Unquote. Harris seems to suggest that we should be able to determine scientifically what contributes to man's well-being. No, notice that he says man's well-being, not an individual man's well-being. Mm-hmm. The big thing here by monitoring his neurophysiological states under varying conditions. He spends... As if he's studying cells in a test tube. Exactly, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Mind you, he he posits a good reason for doing this. Yes. 
Um, he spends a, a good deal of the book explaining that free will is an illusion, and that the illusion of free will itself is an illusion, which may sound like a little double negative, but it actually isn't. And that since the universe is deterministic, then our values, being a part of this clockwork universe, are subject to scientific inquiry. His argument is very powerful, but I found it insufficient. While he understands free will quite well, he does, after all, have a uh, doctorate in mm. philosophy from Stanford, as well as a doctorate in uh, neuroscience. Um, he understands free will quite well. Uh, he does not understand, apparently, that the very notion of values or the morality, ethics, right and wrong and good and evil, come not from a scientific analysis of humanity and not even from religion, but from our nature as human beings. We are not merely conscious, as Harris points out. We can, if we choose, be aware and think and plan and value things which lower animals are incapable of. The salient point is that in order to value something, we have to be able to make a choice. Now, whether free will exists or is illusory, we must act as if it does exist. Free will itself is a value to us because it is the mechanism with which we select our values. It allows us to create societies that permit us to live in peace and hence attain even greater individual values. Robert, you know, that's a profound statement in so many ways when you tie the idea of value to choice. Doesn't it explain a lot? We see, uh, you know, I've always heard, heard people, whether they're moralists, Christians, whatever, part of the moral um, spectrum that you might want to talk about. I was talking about a, a depreciation of values in society lately. Because we have a depreciation of choice. We have a depreciation of choices, and people don't have to make those choices anymore. If uh, someone's been receiving, didn't have to work for their life all their life, of what value are is the importance of a free market, for example? Exactly. Right? Yes. Um, is the importance of reality, for, for, for that matter? Because it's only the guy that has to to get the first dollar who has to be worried about those things. You and I were both brought up in Catholic um, environments. Mm -hmm. And there was a great tenet in the Catholic environment that I hold to this day, and they are absolutely right on this. They, They hold that in order to act morally, you have to be free to act, to make the choices. Yeah, it had to be free will. You had to be, yes, free will. You had to be able to make mistakes as well. And that is true. Now, the thing about Harris is that he is dismissing... um, free will entirely. Uh, actually, his arguments are very, very Did he good. choose to do so? Uh, that's, the, that's another thing. I tell you, when, as soon as they start talking like that, uh, I, 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 I'm already laughing, but that's funny. Okay. Yeah. Free will must be dealt with as a higher order concept, Bob, of a real phenomenon. If the phenomenon is that we are kidding ourselves into thinking that we are in control of our thoughts, then such a phenomenon exists because we all experience this thought that we're all in control. The fact that all, all of us know what we mean when we say, quote, free will, identifies it as something which exists at least as a concept, if not in actuality and reality. The same way that we know what we mean when we say the color blue. Blue doesn't exist in nature, except as a particular frequency of electromagnetic radiation, well, a- but it does exist as a perception and is therefore real in a conceptual sense to man. You know... F- Ayn Rand always, and, and Nathaniel Brandon also always pointed out the obvious contradiction in people who are trying to deny free will. 
in using a word like determinism, what is determined, what is that opposed to? That's opposed to the concept of free will, and denying it, you have to accept it. It's one of those axiomatic concepts, yes. right? And in denying free will, you have to accept it. In <laughs> denying reality, you have to accept it. Because if, if you say, well, reality doesn't exist, if that's true, well, then your proof that reality doesn't exist well, doesn't I exist know, either. Well, I know what Harris is you talking know? about. It is ironic, though, that while dismissing free will, he uses words like decision and choice in the rest of his book because there's no other way to express what we mean when we say we choose one value over another, or that we decided to go to the store to buy some anchovies. So that's the reason we're, we're using those words, because we can't figure out another word, or is it because that's a real concept? I think it because it applies to a common understanding of what we mean when we say free will. Yeah, but it is goes free back, will real? That's the issue. That's what I was asking before. Mm -hmm. Even if it's not real, and this is what I'm saying, even if it's not real and we are in a deterministic world, which, by the way, there is great argument for, we have to act as if it is real. We have no other choice other than to let that... If you don't believe that, well, you might as well just go lie down and die. I, I, I think free will is completely a real thing. Well, anyway, I, but, you know, I, I want to get into that sure. topic a little later. Well, because we're going to do a whole show on that. Mm -hmm. Without the concept of free will, we would live in a world um, which Karl Marx, by the way, called material. This leads to people selecting our values for us based on what they or science, or religion, considered to be good for people as a whole. The individual is left out of the selection process because in a deterministic and material world, we're unable to select since choice and free will do not exist. I get the impression that Sam Harris thinks that there's a duality of science and religion and that it is either one or the other that can determine values. The proper duality would not be religion and science, it would be religion and reason or more properly, faith and reason. Reason and science are not one and the same thing. Science uses reason as a tool and lays the foundation for our understanding of reality, while reason itself is also a tool, but of logic and of epistemology, which expands upon what we know about reality to what we value about reality. Harris's distrust for religion, which, by the way, Bob, mm -hmm. is totally deserved, seems to have blinded him to a philosophy which has over the past several decades achieved what Harris apparently is looking for. The philosophy of objectivism, as described by Ayn Rand, does not appeal to God's faith or myths to establish the difference between right and wrong. It uses an atheistic, logical, reasonable, and methodical and cognitive approach to value determination. We do not need MRIs and CAT scans and brain biopsies to determine morality. We need reason. We need to know that existence exists, that A is A, and that man is a volitional animal. From these premises, we can draw proper conclusions about morality and values. It's somewhat disappointing that Harris, while he quotes from philosophers such as Immanuel Kant and Karl Marx and David Hume in his book, he does not make mention at all of Ayn Rand. He even says that, quote, I have, I have elected not to pay any attention to Aristotle, unquote. <laughs> Such a dismissal and neglect for these powerful philosophers like Rand and Aristotle diminish his book and his argument. Nonetheless, the moral landscape is proving to be an interesting read for me, especially someone like myself interested in science and philosophy, neuroscience and morality. I would recommend it, Bob, for his discussion on free will versus determinism alone, a topic we are both going to expand upon that on a oh, later show. Oh, you bet. Show. And um, 
I, I, I'm worried about this guy already, to be honest with you. <laughs> but that's it for today, folks. We've got to go. And remember, there's a lot of real change here right at CHRW, not the kind you just voted for. You can always call 519-661-3600 to pledge your support to the station. And if the lines are busy, call again. 20 bucks or more, you get a tax receipt. That's it for this week. We hope you'll join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, you know what to do. Be right, act right, stay right, and be right back here. Next week, see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be... I will tell you that you Christians have created a holiday that has become a beast that cannot be fed. Every year, Christmas gets longer and longer and longer, and you don't care, do you? You just take more and more of the calendar for yourself. It's unbelievable. How long does it take you people to shop? It's beyond belief. It's insane. When I was a kid, Halloween was Halloween, and Santa wasn't poking his ass into it.